So again, Mark 2, starting at verse 23, going through Mark 3, verse 6. And when you get there, if you're able to, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, as we now shift our attention to your holy word, and we've read it, Now we're going to consider it together. God, we pray that you would use your word in our lives today. God, that you would open our ears and open our minds and open our hearts to be receptive of your word. We've just read of the hardness of hearts of the Pharisees. And God, we don't want hard hearts. We want our hearts to be very fertile soil for your word so that your holy word, your living word can take root in our hearts and actually grow up and produce fruit in our lives. So God, we ask that you would use your word to that end. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would now begin tilling the soil of our hearts. We pray that you would free us of the distractions in our minds right now and God, that you would just supernaturally cause us to really hone in on this sacred text of scripture. God, we believe that your word is living and it's alive and it's powerful and it can discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and that you use it to revive us and to lead us and to guide us. And Lord, we want all of that today. So Lord, use your word among your body, the church here today, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everyone. Please grab a seat. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is The Sabbath Was Made for Man. The Sabbath Was Made for Man. Of course, I'm getting that from Jesus' line here in verse 27, where he says that exact thing. And so this sermon is going to be a sermon about the Sabbath. Now, at first glance, the two stories that we read and that we're putting together for the purposes of this sermon 
don't necessarily seem to be all that connected. In fact, um, I'm reading from the ESV translation, and even the section headings seem to reinforce the idea that maybe these two passages are unrelated. In the first passage that begins in chapter 2, verse 23, the section heading here in the ESV is, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Whereas the section heading at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, is a man with a withered hand. And so it sounds like the first story has something to do with Jesus and his relationship to the Sabbath, whereas the second story is about a guy whose hand doesn't work properly, and maybe it's about a healing. However, with a bit of reflection, we can see that these two passages are actually dealing with the same issue. And therefore, we'll understand why it makes sense that Mark, in his gospel presentation here, in his telling of the story of Jesus, would actually put these two stories together. You need to notice that in the first place, both of these stories are taking place on the Sabbath day. Verse 23 of chapter 2 says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, it says, They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So both stories are dealing with something happening on the Sabbath. But also we need to pay attention to the central question in both of these stories. In the first story... The Pharisees ask Jesus why his disciples are doing, notice, what is not lawful on the Sabbath. That's verse 24. In the second story, Jesus turns the tables and he now asks the Pharisees a question, but it's essentially the same question. He asks in verse 4 of chapter 3, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? So we see that The issue at stake in both of these stories is what is or is not lawful for a person to do on the Sabbath. That's what these passages are about. And Jesus' answer to that question is going to put him once again at odds with the Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day. Now, chapter 2 brought a shift in Mark's gospel. At the beginning of chapter 2, there was a bit of of a, a pivot to where... Mark, the gospel writer here, begins telling us story after story of this growing antagonism between Jesus and the religious establishment. And there are five consecutive conflict stories where Jesus and the religious leaders are just butting heads. In the first one, at the beginning of chapter 2, the scribes and the Pharisees took issue with Jesus claiming that he had the authority to forgive you of your sins. They actually called him a blasphemer because that's God's authority. In the second story, they took issue with Jesus. You'll remember this, having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Oh, if he knew what kind of people they were, he wouldn't eat with them. They took issue with it. In the third story, they took issue with Jesus because his disciples did not fast like other pious Jews did. Why are your disciples not fasting? And there was conflict once more. And so this means that by the time we come here to the fourth and the fifth conflict stories between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples are on their radar. They're now spying on Jesus and his disciples. They're watching his every move because they are very, very critical of this rabbi who seems to be doing everything he can to go against all that they stand for. And so they're on the radar of the religious establishment. 
We find them spying on Jesus, actually, in both of these passages. This is very clear in the second story because we read in chapter 3, verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So here they are, they're playing Sabbath police. Is Jesus going to heal this guy? Is he really going to do it? Let's watch, let's see. So that way we can accuse him of doing something. So they're spying on him. But this is also suggested in the first story. It's very, very unlikely that the Pharisees would have been able to spy on every single Jewish person walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. But they're very clearly keeping tabs on Jesus and the disciples and they catch them violating the Sabbath laws as they walk through the grain fields. And this brings Jesus and the Pharisees now into this fourth conflict. And what Jesus reveals to us through this conflict is the truth about the Sabbath. The truth about the Sabbath, and it is very profound. This is covered in verse 23 through the end of chapter 2. Look at verse 24. Here's the conflict boiling over. It says, And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So they accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the law. Now, you need to know that they're not accusing them because of what they did, the fact that they plucked these heads of grain, but rather when they did what they did, namely on the Sabbath. See, the law allowed a person to walk through a neighbor's field at harvest time, and you could go and you could pluck the heads of grain or whatever other produce there was and feed yourself if you were hungry. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 23, 25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the idea is, hey, you're free to go through their field and just grab enough to feed yourself if you're hungry and you're traveling through. But what you can't do is steal the guy's harvest. Okay, you can't get out all your farming equipment and just take his harvest away as your own. But you do have the freedom, again, to feed yourself if you are hungry. And this is what the disciples are doing. They're leaning into this provision that God had given in his grace to care for the hungry and the needy in Israel. Presumably the disciples are hungry. They have nothing prepared for themselves and they come across this grain field with food readily available. They take advantage of it. But the Pharisees have a problem again because they're doing this on the Sabbath. And according to them, the disciples are violating the regulations of the Sabbath. Now, the command to honor the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Anybody know what number commandment it is off the top of your head? Oh man, we need to study the Old Testament better. It's the fourth commandment. It's the fourth commandment. So it's a big deal. And it was a very big deal to the Jews at that time, as it still is to religious Jews today. It was one of God's Ten Commandments. But here it is in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Here's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's the fourth commandment. God's command was this, you will work on six days, 
But one day out of every seven, you're going to stop working. You will rest from your labors. No work is to be done. And so for centuries, the Jews worked Sunday through Friday. And then they took the seventh day of the week, Saturday, and they made it a day of rest. It was Sabbath. Now, significantly for our purposes today, you need to know that the scriptures give very few examples of what constitutes forbidden work or forbidden labor on the Sabbath. And so over time, the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish teachers, created long lists of dozens and dozens of Sabbath infractions. And according to the Mishnah, which was a collection of the oral rabbinic traditions, reaping of any kind was forbidden work on the Sabbath. But friends, here's the catch. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in God's sacred scriptures is reaping like this forbidden on the Sabbath. And this means that what the Pharisees are referring to when they claim here, hey, why are your disciples breaking the law, is nothing more than their own traditions, which are called the traditions of the elders. These were their laws, not God's laws. I explained a couple of weeks ago that the Pharisees were guilty of legalism. They believed that the way to restore Israel to her former glory was through personal righteousness. And so the Pharisees wanted to make sure that they never, ever, under any circumstances, violated God's law. They also wanted to make sure that nobody else did. That's why they're playing the Sabbath police here. They want to make sure nobody is violating God's law. Because if we as a nation can really become righteous and be obedient to the law again, that will bring God's blessing back to us. That'll get rid of these pesky Roman overlords who are ruling us with an iron fist. And so here's how they thought about it. This is what I explained a few weeks ago. They thought, okay, if, if God's law is this line here, okay, you shall not break the Sabbath. That's God's law. Don't do any work on the Sabbath. Their thinking was this. Let's scoot over here and just draw another line here. And let's create a whole bunch of additional laws and prohibitions and restrictions and tell people what things are in fact work that will violate the fourth commandment because if nobody even transgressed this first boundary, then there's zero chance of anybody transgressing the real boundary. And therefore, we'll preserve righteousness and holiness here in the land of Israel and we'll bring God's blessing back. And so they would say things like this. They'd go, okay, you shall not work on the Sabbath is the real line. But here's what we'll draw the new line with. You're only allowed to walk a certain amount of paces per day. I think it was 1,999, which is about a half a mile. But if you take that 2,000th step, then like referees in the NFL, they're going to throw the flag at you. That Sabbath violation. You've broken God's law. Or they'd say this. They draw another line. You cannot untie a knot on the Sabbath. Because if you do that, that constitutes work. So if your sandals are tied together, they're knotted together, you just got to leave them until the day after Sabbath. We can't work. And of course, we're learning here today, they said, you cannot pluck a head of grain to eat it if you're hungry on the Sabbath. Friends, every generation of Christians runs the risk of becoming legalistic. And the reason why legalism is so unbelievably tempting 
is because legalism feels safe. I mean, think about it. It feels very, very safe to put a bunch of additional boundaries and lines up that you're drawing that can keep you or your children or your neighbors or your fellow members in your church in line and really make sure everybody's living righteously. Legalism feels very safe. And so one obvious example that Christians of different stripes have struggled with throughout the centuries has been the topic of alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? What is the sinful boundary? If we go back and we draw the line, it is this. Drunkenness is a sin. That's very clear in the Bible. But there have been various Christians throughout church history who have said, well, the only way to make sure that we never cross that line is we draw another line over here. And we say, Christians can't drink alcohol at all. And that's been popular in many Christian traditions. Now, friends, if you personally want to make that your standard, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's probably a lot of wisdom in that. The problem of legalism is when you draw the new line to ensure that you yourself don't cross the biblical line, and then you say, all of you need to honor my line as well. You're not allowed to cross that. If you cross that, somehow you're less of a Christian, somehow you're sinning against God, somehow you're violating God's command. But again, we do that because it feels safe. Unfortunately, Christians have called all sorts of things sin that the Bible doesn't. We're a Southern Baptist church. It wasn't long ago that Baptists said dancing was a form of sin. Of course, various forms of entertainment have been condemned. Playing cards has been condemned. Reading Harry Potter has been condemned. I could go on and on, not necessarily by Baptists, but by Christians of various stripes. And we could go on and on and on and find all sorts of things that have been condemned as sinful and people have been looked down upon if, even though those things themselves are nowhere listed in the Bible. So how do we avoid legalism like the Pharisees? We would do well to be no stricter in binding the consciences of other believers than God's word itself, lest we pretend we are wiser than God. Let me say that one more time. We would do well to be no stricter in binding the consciences of other believers than God's word itself, lest we pretend we are wiser than God. God gave the boundaries in his wisdom. We shouldn't add to those boundaries or move those boundaries. So how does Jesus defend his disciples here from the legalism of the Pharisees? Well, as he so often does, Jesus answers a question with a question. Look at verse 25 again. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is appealing to an Old Testament example from honestly the guy who the Pharisees would have thought of as like the greatest hero in the Old Testament. So that helps the argument. But he appeals to the scriptures. He appeals to an Old Testament example to defend his disciples' actions. And he asks a very stinging question up front. He says, have you never read? This is a rebuke. 
And the, the Pharisees would have heard it that way. They would have been insulted that Jesus would ask them this because these guys had read the story dozens and dozens and dozens of times. These guys were Bible guys, well-versed in the scriptures. And so when Jesus says, have you never read that one thing about David? What he's really getting at here is he's saying, you guys have failed to understand the significance of what you have read about David. So he's rebuking them and he's really getting in their face here. The incident that Jesus was referring to is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In this chapter, David, who has been anointed as Israel's next king, but is not yet king, is on the run for his life from Israel's current king, King Saul. David found out that Saul wanted to kill him and he had to get out in a hurry. And so he takes off and he runs and he flees the presence of the king and he has no provisions. He's got no weapons. He's got no food. He has no supplies. And so he stops at a nearby city or town called Nob, which is a couple miles from the city that King Saul is in. And Nob at this point in Israel's history had become the temporary dwelling place of the tabernacle. And David goes there and the priests are there in Nob. And when David is coming down the road, the priest comes out and greets him. And David asks him, hey, what do you have on hand? Do you have any bread on hand? What food do you have on hand? I'm hungry. I don't have anything. I'm sent on urgent business. And the priest tells him the only food available at that moment is the bread of the presence. What's that? Well, every Sabbath day, and here's the connection to the Sabbath, Every Sabbath day, the priests would bake 12 loaves of bread from fine flour. Those 12 loaves of bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would take these fresh loaves of bread into the holy place and they would set them on the table for showbread. They'd lay them out in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. On the new Sabbath day, when they would bake new 12 loaves and they would carry that in and lay it on the table, they would remove the old bread, and that bread became food to be eaten. But here is the catch, and Jesus points it out here. It was food to be eaten only by the priests. For anybody else to touch that food would mean serious trouble. And yet, in this instance, in 1 Samuel 21, as the priest evaluates the seriousness of David's needs, He makes an exception and he gives David and his men the bread to eat. Translation, the priest broke God's law in order to help David and his men who were in need. They were hungry and his judgment was that feeding them was the priority. And so here's the connection to Jesus' situation. If the priest was willing to violate God's law on the Sabbath to care for David in his time of need, how much more sense does it make for Jesus to violate the Pharisees' law on the Sabbath to care for his disciples in their time of need? Answer, it makes a ton of sense, especially when we understand the truth about the Sabbath, which is what Jesus explains now in verse 27. Here comes his punchline. Look at verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What a beautiful, liberating line from Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is that the Sabbath 
was meant to serve humanity. Not humanity meant to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to us by God to bless our lives. It meant that one day in seven, you rested from your labor. One day in seven, you were refreshed and you were recharged and you were reminded that you belong to the one true God who himself worked for six days and on the seventh day, he rested. And so Jesus here is showing these Pharisees that they have fundamentally misunderstood God's good intentions with the Sabbath. Under their control and under their authority, rather than Sabbath functioning as the blessing that God intended it to be, Sabbath was terrorizing the precious and needy people of Israel. Friends, Jesus' view on the Sabbath here really ought to reorient our view on all of God's law. Jesus is talking about one of the commandments, the fourth commandment, and he is saying, in effect, this is for your blessing. This is for your blessing. And you need to know that all of God's law, every command that God has given to his people, is intended for your blessing. It is not meant to be a burden to you. It is not intended to ruin your life, but to bless it. Now, I grew up in the church, and I can remember as a boy being raised in the church, thinking of God's law as just a list of rules that he established to test me and see whether or not I was a good little boy. That's how I viewed God's law. This is just a test to see. Can I measure up? Am I a good kid or am I a bad kid? In that way, I thought of God's law as arbitrary. What I mean by that is the sixth commandment, which is you shall not murder, could have just as easily been you shall always step with your right foot first. It wouldn't have mattered what it was. It was just a rule given by God to test me to see whether I will, for the rest of my life, just step with my right foot forward. God could have given us any random Ten Commandments just simply to test us. But that's not how the law works. Friends, God's law is not arbitrary. No matter what commandment you're looking at, God's law is meant to lead to humanity's blessing. So the Sixth Commandment, for example, you shall not murder is very intentional. Because if you murder somebody, guess what? You've destroyed that person's life. You've destroyed that family and their friends. And murdering somebody even has a destructive effect on the murderer. God's law is a means to an end. The law is a means to human flourishing as we stand in right relationship to God and to one another. But the problem with the Pharisees is that they saw the law as an end unto itself. The law is there, it exists, and we're meant to serve it. But Jesus sets the record straight. No, the law of the Sabbath is for man, not man for the law of the Sabbath. I would ask you this morning, how do you view the commands of God? I mean, if you're being honest, do you feel like God's commands are a blessing for you? Do you delight in them? Do you long to obey the commands of God? Or do you look at the commands of God, at least some of them, you go, man, that really feels like a burden. Man, why does God have to be such a cosmic killjoy? There's so much fun to be had, but he's telling me no. Is that how you feel about God's law? I wonder if you can relate to the psalmist's perspective in Psalm 119, starting in verse 97, when he says this, 
Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. I love this one. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Can you relate to that? At least in some measure. Do you love the law of God? Do you see it as intended for your blessing, keeping you on a path that will bring blessing to you and those around you? Now let me shift gears or shift focus and just specifically ask you about the fourth commandment, which Jesus is dealing with here. God's law about Sabbath. Notice with me that Jesus here in this teaching does not do away with the Sabbath. His argument to the Pharisees is, oh no, 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 the Sabbath is gone. We can do whatever we want on the Sabbath. That's not his argument at all. His argument is, no, no, no. Sabbath, rightly understood and rightly practiced, is a gift. It's a blessing from the Lord. And so I wonder, do you have a habit of honoring the Sabbath? Does the idea of taking one day out of every seven as a day for you to rest from work, whether paid work, domestic work, It doesn't matter to rest from your work and recharge and rejoice in God's blessings in your life. Does that sound to you like an unreasonable burden or like an inviting blessing? And how does your answer to that question align with Jesus' view here on the Sabbath? I would suggest to you that if you are not in the habit of honoring the Sabbath, you are robbing yourself and your family of blessings that God intends to usher into your life. Now, Christians have long honored the Sabbath on Sunday, the Lord's Day, and there's freedom in Paul's teaching on what day we would honor as a day of Sabbath rest, so we don't have to be strict about it with Saturday, like the Jews. But again, Jesus is not saying the Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. It's no longer a blessing. Ignore it. He's saying it is intended for your blessing. And so the truth about Sabbath is that it was meant to bring you blessing and never to be a burden for you. But there's one more truth about the Sabbath that Jesus needs to make clear. And it's who is the true authority over the Sabbath. And this ends chapter 2. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, this is the second time in Mark's gospel that Jesus has used this title for himself, Son of Man. Both times were in these conflicts with the Pharisees. The first was back when Jesus claimed to have authority to forgive sins. This is Mark 2, 10 and 11. Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man, there it is, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So that's the first time he uses this title. And now here is the second time. Again, as Jesus is announcing now his authority, which is pretty remarkable authority, authority over the Sabbath. It's becoming clear now in the way that Jesus is using this title, Son of Man, 
that Jesus is using this title in a very specific way. See, among the Jews, there was this growing understanding of this title, the Son of Man, that was rooted in its use back in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, this figure that was going to come on the scene and be called the Son of Man was going to be a figure who was going to usher in the kingdom of God. He was going to be a remarkable figure. And Jesus here is saying, hey, guess what? That's me. I'm the Son of Man. I have authority on earth to forgive your sins. I have authority over even God's law and the laws of the Sabbath. And this is some of the new wine that is going to require brand new wineskins for the Pharisees and the scribes to accept. Jesus is saying to them, listen, I am no ordinary rabbi. I am God's Messiah. I am the one who has come to usher in the kingdom of God. I am the one who has unparalleled authority. And here's the irony in this. The irony is it was the Pharisees who thought that they and their traditions were the authority over Sabbath observance. And now Jesus is saying, that's not your place. Only the Lord of the Sabbath has authority over the Sabbath. Once again, Jesus here is suggesting his own deity. When you stop and you think about it, who created the Sabbath? God. Who laid down the guidelines about the Sabbath? God. So God is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one with authority over the Sabbath. And Jesus says, hey guys, guess what? I am the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man, this Messiah who was going to come is even more unique than you ever imagined. This Messiah who was to come would actually be God himself coming and establishing his authority among his people. Jesus is making an incredible claim about who he is and the authority that he carries. Therefore, Jesus deserves to be listened to and obeyed. Now, this rebuke of Jesus and the Pharisees leads to the fifth and final conflict in this section of Mark. In this fourth conflict that we've just talked about, Jesus revealed the truth about the Sabbath. But in this final conflict, Jesus reveals the truth about the Pharisees. Look again at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So the scene shifts now from the grain fields to the synagogue, the place of public worship for the Jews. But notice the conflict stays the same. It's still the Sabbath day. The Pharisees are still spying on Jesus to see, is he going to be a law keeper or a law breaker with regard to the Sabbath? Specifically here, they're watching because they know that there's a man in the synagogue who has a withered hand. His one hand does not work. And they know that Jesus has been healing a lot of people. And so they're going, okay, the stage is set. Maybe Jesus will violate the Sabbath law and again, we'll have a reason to accuse him. We'll have a reason to discredit this guy. And maybe the people will stop following him and they'll return to following us. According to the rabbis, Only if this man's life was in danger would any intervention or any work be justifiable on the Sabbath. Clearly, this guy's life is not in danger. He just has a withered hand. And so they feel like the trap has been set. Is Jesus going to violate the Sabbath law or not? 
Now, this is crazy, right? I mean, if you were there, if I was there, we would also be watching Jesus very carefully to see if he's going to heal this guy. But not so we could accuse him. So we could marvel at him, right? Wouldn't we just have our minds blown if there was a person whose hand was shriveled and withered and very unlike their other hand and just with this, the, the word from Jesus, boom, their hand is restored. I mean, who has ever seen anything like that before? I haven't. So I'd be, I'd be sitting on the edge of my seat too. Like, what's Jesus gonna do? Is, is it gonna happen? Is he gonna heal this guy? But again, it would be for me to marvel at him. But not the Pharisees. They want to condemn him. This is how hard their hearts had become. They're only concerned about whether people like Jesus check all the boxes. But Jesus cares about the man In verse 3, he says to him, come here. So forget about anything secret happening in a back room of the synagogue. Jesus is like, they want conflict, they're going to get it. Calls him right up front in in, in front of the class. And he says, come here. And the man does. And then Jesus goes on the offensive. Look at verse 4. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. The answer is quite obvious, right? But notice that the Pharisees can't bring themselves to answer him. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus then asks another question that highlights their hypocrisy and their failure to love. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. So right after asking, is it it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Jesus goes on and he says to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? So notice, that was commonplace for them. If their animal fell into a pit and got trapped on the Sabbath, it wasn't work to save their animal. Now Jesus turns it on him and he says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? And he says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You would imagine that this would just cut these guys to the heart. That's right, Jesus. How could we value our animals more than this precious man created in the image of God who's in need. But it doesn't. They remain completely silent. They won't even answer his question. I love pastor and author Jason Meyer's insight here. And I quote, he says, they say nothing. Jesus has exposed them for the frauds that they are. They don't care about people. They lack compassion. They don't have hearts that are set on doing good or saving life. Their motive for following the rules is not love. The Sabbath has been turned into a competition to see who can do nothing best. The Sabbath loses all meaning when it is disconnected from God's heart to bless his people. It's very true. So Jesus has exposed what's going on. He silenced the Pharisees, but now he's going to reveal the true condition of their heart in verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Rather than being filled with the love of God, that would overflow in love toward their neighbor, these Pharisees had hard hearts. They could look at a man in need, and again, just not care about him. Have no desire to see this man healed. 
In the first episode, the Pharisees cared more about their laws than poor, hungry Jews having something to eat on Sabbath. Here, they cared more about their laws than a man who only had one use of his hand probably his entire life, having it restored and functioning perfectly. And this shows how hard their hearts truly were. And this angers our Lord. Did you see that in the text? He's actually angry with them. Because he can see how awful the condition of their heart actually is. How could they care more for a sheep than a person? And what's so tragic is that they were so spiritually blind that they couldn't see that in attempting to uphold their own traditions, they were failing to actually obey God's law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, God's law is very simple. Jesus boils it all down for us in two commandments. Love God and love people. And in attempting to be the best law keepers, the, the Pharisees actually missed the whole point. If your faith, if your religion, is not leading you constantly to love God more and to love your neighbor better, then you're missing the whole point. You are not keeping in step with the Spirit of God. The law is meant to lead us to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, let's read verse 6 and just make note of the, the final tragic irony in these stories. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It would have been great to read, And the Pharisees were cut to the heart, they repented of their sins. And they began following Jesus. But we don't. They turn from this experience. From this rebuke and correction from our Lord. And it seems they just double down on having very hard hearts. Jesus asked them a very clear question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to kill and to destroy? The obvious answer is no, that's never lawful. And yet what do we find the Pharisees go out and conspire to do? To kill and destroy Jesus. And listen, on the Sabbath. Again, these guys who were so concerned about keeping all of their traditions in order on the Sabbath are now willing to go and violate the heart and the essence of all of God's law and conspire to kill an innocent man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And shockingly, they want to invite the Herodians in to help them. These were supporters of King Herod. These were the people that wanted to maintain the status quo because they were the ones in power. And so even though they were nothing like the Pharisees, they had one thing in common. They all saw Jesus as a threat. If Jesus rocks the boat, the Romans are going to get us out of power. And so they will join the Pharisees in trying to kill Jesus. In every new generation, people find that Jesus, the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels is a threat to their way of life. To the rich and powerful, he threatens their comforts and their privilege. To the pleasure seekers, he threatens their sexual freedom. To the self-righteous, he threatens their sense of moral superiority. And tragically for many people, it is easier for them to turn against Jesus than to, to turn against their own sinfulness and their own unloveliness. And so they rail at Jesus and they rail at Christianity and they make up all sorts of excuses of why they won't follow him. 
they, like the Pharisees, would gladly stand among the crowds chanting, crucify him at his trial. And yet the saddest part of it is that all the while, the one that they stand against came to do them good and came to save their life. Jesus told us as much in John 10.10. 10, he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's the enemy who seeks to take away your life. But Jesus gave away his life for you so that you could have your sins forgiven. The cross where Jesus died is the ultimate statement of God's love for you. Every time we think about the cross, we need to see Jesus' display of the heart of God. That at the cross, Jesus was willing to go and lay down his life for the sins of every single person who would ever turn to him in faith. Even awful sins. Even darkened hearts like the hearts of these Pharisees. And so nobody is too far gone that the cross and the grace of Jesus couldn't reach them. And so I wonder, if you're not a Christian here today, how you would respond, how you want to respond to the cross of Jesus Christ. Will you be a person who hardens your heart even more or will you be a person who opens up your heart to the love of God displayed for you in the death and resurrection of Christ? Let's pray together. God, we do thank you today for these additional reminders of your heart. God, we know that as human beings who are so prone to sinfulness, that oftentimes, if we're honest, our own hearts are pretty dark places. The way we think about people and feel about people, the things we say to people and do to people are oftentimes awful. Lord, often it's the way that we think about you, the things that we say about you, or the ways that we dishonor you through our lives, again, can reveal that our hearts are dark and hardened. But God, as believers, we are so thankful that in your grace, you have softened our hearts in fact, the prophets in the Old Testament tell us that you've removed our hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh. And although we don't always get it right, we're so thankful that our hearts are being resensitized through your holy word and that we're being empowered to love the way that you've called us to love. God, would you free us more and more from temptations toward legalism and all of the pride that's associated with it? God, may we never look down on other people who don't do things exactly the way that we do or exactly the way that we would want them to. And God, we pray that you would open our hearts in love toward every single person around us. God, that we would always be motivated to care for the needs that we see in front of us. God, would you work these things into our hearts? Would you grow us in Christ-likeness, we ask in his name, amen.